one thought stands over it all, and that is simply that he is faithful. And at times we have laughed hard and at times we have cried hard. Um, but as we've journeyed through very happy times with people and very sad times too, but as I said, through it all, he has been constant and he has been so faithful. So we started off with a vision of running Kids Club each week, but God has also opened the door during different seasons to set up a homework club and a weekly coffee morning for parents as well. And one year we were really blessed to be able to bring a group of um, children to a pony school when another organization gave us the funding for that. And it makes my heart so happy that three of those girls are here at church today. You see, God uses absolutely everything. And most recently, we started a group called DEEP, which is a discipleship group for our junior leaders and also um, a girls' life group. And those girls are here as well. Um, I have so enjoyed coming alongside the leaders. And as they've grown up, it has been an absolute privilege to watch them step up to lead. And this year, Rachel has taken on the leadership of Kids Club. And Johnny and I are officially jobless anyway the 31st is honestly one of those events that I have no idea what it's going to look like there could be 20 people or a lot less or a lot le or a lot more but we've tried our best to plan a fun event that will be memorable for all who come um, we're going to run the normal club with a few twists and afterwards we're going to enjoy a barbecue bouncy castle candy floss popcorn all the likes etc etc so this is where you all come in we need help There'll be many ways to serve, serving tea, coffee, helping with the barbecue, manning queues, and even just chatting with people and making them feel so welcome. Our own leaders will all be there, but definitely a few extra hands and a few extra mice would be useful. So if you do feel prompted, please um, come and speak to me afterwards. Obviously, it won't work if everybody comes along uh, because then there'll be more of us than there is of them. But if you really do feel prompted in your spirit, please do come and chat to me afterwards. And if we're not there, everyone can pray. Please pray for good weather. Bouncy castles are no fun in the rain and neither are barbecues, so that would be great. And I know as I think beyond this year, I'm believing for more and praying for more. And we don't know what the future holds, but with certainty we know who holds the future. So just it, it links in this wee line actually with what we've been, what God has been doing already this morning. I've just said that together may our hearts break for what breaks his heart. And together may we all cry out everything we are for his kingdom's cause. So please come and speak to me afterwards if you'd like to help out. Thank you. Brilliant. Brilliant. Then give a round of applause for that brilliant pitch. So yeah, yeah like it's amazing like, Pre-existing relationships, you know, for 10 years or more in the area with lots of kids and opportunity to bless them and their families on the 31st of May. We want to support that as a church. We're putting a little bit of investment behind it to support it. But we'd also love if people can get along to do that. That would be great as well. Stephen, come on um, ahead. Just as Stephen comes, just the last announcement is um, to say that we really, really love you to continue to think, if you haven't already, about coming to the Tabar Conference. We really see it as our family kind of time two days together we think it's going to be phenomenal we're really excited about what the holy spirit's do, going to do and um we really believe he's going to do some stuff and i really don't want anyone to miss out on that so um uh, if you can come please please do that's going to be on the 14th and 15th of june all right stephen's going to continue our series here on um the great commission and unfolding it. We spent a Bob Marl show all a week. He wasn't one of the ones in the fight, by the way. <coughs> How do you know? The quarrel at the Bob Marl they're talking about. That. 
You've heard you've heard about the thriller in Manila. This was the quarrel at Balmoral, apparently. Let's um, let's pray for Stephen as he as he shares with us. God, thank you for Stephen, Lord. Thank you for his heart for this house and for the people here. And Holy Spirit, we just thank you for the preparation of heart and work and study that he's put into this talk. Pray, Lord, as he speaks now, you give him a flow of your spirit as he delivers it. Uh, Lord, you'd make it easy for him as he communicates that with us and give us hearts to receive in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Ali. I'm taking my watch off because I know there's a picnic after the service. So, um, I really, just during worship there, I really, even even from from I've come in actually and, and looking through my notes and what have you, I've, I've just got a sense of the fear was on my mind and that word fear and especially through the whole worship and I just got that and um, if, I, if I get time and I get through my notes when we talk a wee bit about that at the end but I've, I've a lot to cover here this morning but um, this message of persecution can also sort of maybe enhance that you know in, in fear in our lives but just if anybody has that sense of fear when when we were worshiping there you know there's just come up for prayer at the end because we'd love to pray over that because fear is one of those things that'll help stop stop you stepping into the destiny that you have in Christ. So if that does apply to anybody, please just come and <clears throat> make yourself known. But over the last couple of weeks, um, we have been looking at the series of Spirit Breakout. Debbie and Chris have been sharing about um, the Spirit breaking out and miracles and signs and wonders. Um, <clears throat> What if we dared to pray for people on the streets, for their healing, for miracles to perform? And, you know, if we were so in touch with our Heavenly Father that we would know how to pray for somebody and see those things happening in our, in our streets. Um, if the Spirit broke out in that way, what would our town look like? We want to emulate what was happening in the early church. And Ali has been sharing on how... Um, the early church mirrored the life of Jesus, and the book of Luke and Acts was like a, a roadmap of how um, we want to walk in our relationship with Christ. But I want to talk about what if the Spirit broke out in a different way? What if the Spirit broke out in our own lives, not, not necessarily in signs and wonders, although that's what we want, but what if it broke out in our own way that transformed the very people of, of who we are? Like in Acts, let's see if this clicker's working. Yes, Acts four six. <clears throat> when the people saw the, the people said, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. And I find that a challenge in my own life. Do people look at me and do people look at us and see that and are astonished that we have been with Jesus? And that's what it is to come into that relationship with Christ. And what's it like to have that unsatiable hunger for God's word? What if Christ broke out in our own lives that we just had to be at Sunday morning? We just had to be at the prayer meeting. What would our lives look like? And what would that look like to other people if they've seen that passion in our lives? Because if you have a passion for something, I don't need to ask you what it is. It's obvious. I'll see it. Your friends will know what it is. And that's what the early church was operating in when they had their passion for Christ. And when we talk about persecution... The early church was operating at that level of hunger. It didn't leave them when difficult times came. In fact, it was because of that level of hunger they had for Christ that um, 
actually was it was bringing them into persecution because it ruffled the feathers of all those around them. And we'll see that later on when we look at the, the stoning of Stephen in Acts um, 7 and 8. But I suppose what I'm getting at really this morning is how deep would your faith go if you were faced with the likes of that type of persecution as they are in many parts of the world? And what does it look like for the Spirit to break out in our own lives in that way? So, as I said, I want to look at the subject of persecution this morning. And what I want to try and cover is, depending on how time goes, <coughs> what Jesus taught about persecution and what we can expect. The mindset of the Pharisees and the two characters of Stephen and Saul and what they believed was the mindset of the Pharisees will help give us a framework of why the persecution broke out in the early church. So, with that being said, <coughs> I want to ask a couple of questions. What happens when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? And have you ever felt that God has let you down? And when God doesn't fit into how you expect things to go, how do you react to that? I think one of the most common questions we have in situations like that, and not just persecution, but a lot of trials and tribulations and things that come along in our own lives, is, is the question, why? And the early church were known as people of the way, but sometimes we perhaps don't fully realize what the way is. John the Baptist, John the Baptist was in prison for a number of months before he was beheaded, and he began to doubt himself. Was Jesus the person who was to come, or should they expect another? And I think part of that can, can come from maybe the way we hear the gospel preached or how we have preached it ourselves and, and talk to people about it. Sometimes we can preach a gospel and preach Jesus that's quite self-centered, we can see that a lot in the prosperity gospel, as Ali had mentioned you know, a couple of weeks ago. Everybody should be healthy, and everybody should be wealthy, and if you're not, then there's something wrong with your faith. Um, and we can see Jesus in, a lot in terms of salvation and saving us from our sins and getting our ticket to heaven, more so than we see Jesus as being king and living out the kingdom values. And we can lead people into a, a prayer of repentance, um, more so than we can in leading people into a prayer of submission and submission to the king. And there's a big difference. I'm not, I'm not saying we don't lead people into a prayer of repentance, so don't hear what I'm not saying, if you know what I mean. But um, there's a big difference in, in a prayer of submission to, to the king. Jesus came um, preaching the kingdom. But it's not unusual to hear preaching about the abundant blessings that it is to be in the Christian life. And, and what I mean by that is probably the, the blessings that the Christian life is to us and the material things that come along with that, and we can maybe get caught up in that sometimes um, <clears throat> when we hear certain preachers. And I'm not saying that God doesn't bless us in that way because I'm blessed with a, a lovely family, a lovely house, a nice job. Um, so, so God does bless us in those ways. But I want to look at um, some other ways that Jesus talked about blessing in the New Testament. There is a, there's an old hymn that says, Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Well, that's not quite true in my testimony. I'm, I'm sure it's not quite true in a lot of yours as well. So one of the things we want to look at is that Jesus is more interested in your character than he is in your comfort. So with that being said, amongst other things, here's, here's what it means to follow Jesus, what Jesus said. <coughs> Matthew 10, when he sent out the, in Matthew 10, when he sent out the 12. 
Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are saying, for what you are to say will be given to you and not our. For it is not you who speaks, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and his, the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated for, by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Here's what Jesus was promising out of those verses. You'll be sent out like sheep among wolves, brought before courts, flogged, dragged before authorities, killed by your family members, hated, persecuted, and having to flee from town to town. It's not really the evangelistic message we take out onto the streets, you know, but for, for some people in this world, coming into fellowship with Jesus and proclaiming him of king is a sign in your death warrant. Now, that mightn't apply to everyone here, but for some it might. When we were in India in 2010, right, for three months, uh, one of the seminars, at Bible College for three months, and one of the seminars was on prayer, and it was taken by a pastor, Mohan, who was the head of the Assemblies of, Assemblies of God Church. His church in Chennai in southeast India had about between twenty and 30,000 members, but he was known for his two hours of prayer every single morning. And <clears throat> one of, when they were doing a question and answering session, he was talking about, like, you know, when the Bible says about um, drawing away privately and getting into your closet and praying just to your, your father. And when he was sharing about that and someone asked him, in that, in that culture, um, the Indian culture, someone had said, I'm afraid that my family will find out that I'm a Christian because I could be tortured or I could be put out of my family. And his advice to them was, when you're in the shower, you pray. That is your private place to pray when you're in the corner of the room. There's a lot of the, the Indian houses, just one small room, corner of the room, pull the shower curtain around you, and that's when you pray, and that's when you have your time um, with Jesus. And when we come into that relationship, basically what we're declaring is what John the Baptist said in reference to Jesus in John 30. <coughs> he must decrease, he, he must increase, but I must decrease. And that's what the early church were fully committed to. And it was through this, this total submission that we read that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Beatitudes is verses that we're all very familiar with. In Matthew 5, 10, <coughs> 10 to 12, blessed, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad. Jesus is saying, turn your persecution into a, into a worship meeting. You know, we don't often think of persecution as being blessed, but that's what Jesus is calling it. So that's what, that's what Jesus is calling to be part of the Christian life. Part of the blessings of being in the Christian life is persecution. And when we walk in the way of Christ, we will upset people. And, and that's what we are to expect if we're flowing in that grace and we're stepping out of the fear and stepping out in love to those around us. But we're not to be afraid of that. <clears throat> Matthew 5 says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. And fear and persecution shouldn't stop us from um, bringing, the, bringing the message of Christ um, into the world. 
in, in the Gospels, we don't necessarily see a lot of persecution per se, but we have the beheading of John the Baptist and plots to kill Jesus and obviously the crucifixion. Um, John 11, some of the chief priests and Pharisees plotted to kill Jesus because he threatened their way of life. And we'll take a look at that later on, about how they felt threatened that way of life. But Hebrews 11, Paul also talks about... Um, <clears throat> There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced years and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, they were sawn in two, they were killed by the sword, they went about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in the desert and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Point two that I want to bring out. When we're called into a relationship with Jesus, Jesus is bringing us to a point of execution. Jesus doesn't, we can preach a lot, and I've heard it preached a lot, that Jesus went to the cross and he took our place on the cross, which isn't quite true. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ didn't just go to the cross, he takes us to the cross as well. And all those passions and desires and all those desires we bring to the cross to live our life fully submitted to him and his will for our lives. And we see in the Great Commission, um, <clears throat> in Acts 1.8, where Jesus gave the command to the disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you. And, and Chris, um, a couple of weeks ago, mentioned that where the Holy Spirit is, there the power is as well. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jesus had given them clear, clear instructions of where they were to go. Um, <clears throat> but the, the, when the disciples went back to Jerusalem, um, Jesus told them that the Holy Spirit would come. And what we need is we need to partner with the Holy Spirit because to do the work of the, to do the work of Jesus, we need to partner with the Holy Spirit. But I wonder what the early church thought when, they, when Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come and what were they expecting. I'm sure it was a time of really not sure of what was going to happen because they just followed Jesus for three years and said goodbye to him and then he said that the Holy Spirit would come. But even after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost in Jerusalem, the disciples still did not go to Judea and Samaria and the rest of the world. They stayed in Jerusalem. So we have disciples that at that point, on the day of Pentecost came, we have disciples that are full of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, but they still weren't fulfilling God's call in their life. Um, if you see and if we are operating in speaking in tongues and performing miracles, you can still be walking in disobedience to God's call in your life. So don't let signs and wonders be a mark of someone's spiritual maturity. This is maybe just going off on a wee tangent here, but um, Matthew seven twenty one to 23 not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell you plainly, I never knew you away from me. Now, if we, if we were operating in those things, um, driving out demons and performing miracles, you would think there was somebody who was walking in obedience to Christ, but that's not necessarily the way. The... Uh, the mark of maturity in, in someone's life is obedience, not signs and miracles. Um, <clears throat> but as we looked at in Acts 1.8, Jesus, 
Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and be my witness in Jerusalem today and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And then after the, sto- the stone of Stephen, we have Acts 8.1. So it's good to remember those two, Acts 1.8 and then Acts 8.1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. So the great commission that Jesus had given four to five years earlier started to happen whenever persecution hit the church. So what Satan's way of trying to stamp out the church was God's way of promoting it. So I want to talk, I want to talk briefly just about Stephen and Saul um, just so that we can have an idea of why there was a clash there and why the persecution did break out. And I'll start, first of all, with Saul, because it'll help us to see why then Stephen sort of undermined everything that Saul believed in. At the start of Acts 8, we're introduced to Saul, who was basically a terrorist, um, thinking that he was doing God's will. We're introduced to him on the basis of him giving approval to Stephen Stone. But why would Saul... um, give approval to Stephen's death and to Stephen's stoning. And to, to find that out, I want to look at the mindset of the Pharisees. Just to give a framework of what Saul believed and what the Pharisees believed, so that we can see how big a clash it was when Stephen came um, preaching the gospel. So <clears throat> the, Jews, the Jews had a very long and deep history. Their history and their culture was something that was so deeply ingrained and rooted in their lives. When we read the Old Testament, we read the history of the Jewish people. But when the Jews read it, they're reading about their family. And that's how, um, that's how closely linked they were to their, to their ancestors and the, and the Old Testament, the history of the Old Testament. The law was something that was ingrained in them from they were no age, and the temple was central to their whole way of life. The, the temple was the place that housed the presence of God. The law was ingrained in them um, from they were before, before they could even talk. They were memorizing the scriptures. But the temple was a place where heaven and earth met. In the, to be in the temple to the Jew was to be in heaven. That's how important it was for them. You couldn't divorce it from their everyday life. The temple was a representation of creation. Um, creation being the first temple and the Garden of Eden being the Holy of Holies. And that's where God placed his, his idol, man. And that's where he fellowshiped with them. So if the temple was destroyed to the Jews, that was a finish of their, their way of life. So you can see how that went down when Jesus came proclaiming his kingdom and saying that the temple opened tore down. So the Pharisees knew their history. They, they knew their history of being in captivity in Egypt and how God had delivered them through Moses and brought them to the promised land. But they were also aware of um, how they had been disobedient um, during their history. For example, when Moses was up the mountain and um, they were down, um, down, on the mount- down from the mountain um, making the golden calf and worshipping it. So the Pharisees knew that history and knew where Israel had went wrong in the past. Um, <clears throat> then further down the line, after the Exodus, then the, when they reached the Promised Land, then they were taken into um, Babylon for 70 years. And from that point on, the, the Jewish people were never fully free. So we'll come to the point of when they were in, in, the Jewish people were in, the Israelites were in captivity in Babylon. Um, in Daniel 2, we read of the King Nebuchadnezzar having a dream. And this is quite key to the, the Pharisees' mindset. So in that dream, just in case you're wondering, this is what's this got to do with persecution? This um, bit of background. So in that dream, 
Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of a statue of his head of gold, arms, um, chest and arms of silver, belly of, and thigh of bronze, and legs and iron of, of and toes of iron and clay. So Nebuchadnezzar hadn't a clue what this dream meant. Daniel came along and interpreted it. What that dream meant was <coughs> the statue represented four ages that were to come. The head of gold was the Babylonian um, age that they were in when they were in captivity. After that was going to come the Persians. After that was going to, going to come, so the, the chest and arms of silver represented the Persians, Persians. The belly and thighs of bronze represented the Greeks. And then the legs and toes represented the Romans. But what, what, then, what they were waiting on was the Messiah to come from heaven and smash this whole empire so they would not be in exile any longer and they would be a free people. And the Pharisees at that time, they longed for this to happen. They were waiting for that Messiah to come. They were waiting for God to deliver them out of captivity. They longed for it. They talked about it. They ate, slept, and drank this. They, continued they continually held it in their conversation. It was a longing of their hearts because while they were under Roman rule, they were still not free. They were still in exile. So they longed for the glory of God to come. The passion of the Pharisees wasn't necessarily where are you going when you die. The passion of the Pharisees was for the glory of God to return to them as a nation. And while they were under Roman rule, they were still in exile. So the temple, the temple was the place that housed God's presence. It was God's, the law was God's divine gift to give guidance in their way of life. Disobedience to the law was looked down on with disdain. For the Jews, that marked them... Um, what marked them as being separate from the world was obedience to the law. So the Pharisees saw the advancement of the law as a way to conclude the story of the Jewish people and usher in the, um, the Messiah coming to, to smash these kingdoms. And for those who weren't obeying the law, the Pharisees, to get you to obey the law, would use violence if needs be. Jesus said in John 16 too, they will put you in... They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. And that was the mindset of the Pharisees. So that's just a bit of a framework of what the, the Jews and the Pharisees were longing for. And that history, and so it gives a wee bit of a framework of, of what they were thinking in New Testament times. So then for Saul himself, Saul was a Jew who was well-versed in, in, in Jewish culture. He grew up under the, under the influence of the Roman Empire, and he was also from a town called Tarsus, which was a Greek town um, known for its universities and Greek philosophy. Um, <clears throat> before, before Saul could have even walked or talked, he would have heard this Jewish prayer called the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. Four, four Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. This is probably the, the most recited verse in the whole world. Um, twice a day the Jews recite this verse. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress him on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on, your, on the doors, frames of your house and on your gates. So, Paul would have, or Saul at that stage, would have memorized these from his new age. Um, he was then, he would have his own handwritten copy of the scriptures when he was younger. By the age 13, he would have memorized all the Psalms. Um, <clears throat> there's a challenge for anybody in 
primary school. Um, but when we hear things of God, it probably puts us to shame of you know how we need to instill God's word in our hearts. At that age, then he was sent to Jerusalem, where he stud- he studied under a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel. In Acts five thirty four, it says Gamaliel was a teacher of the law who was honoured by all the people. And because of the significance of the temple in Jewish culture, and the temple was being in Jerusalem for Saul to be sent to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem where the temple was, and to study under Gamaliel was a massive, massive privilege. And here's what here's what Saul had to say about himself. Saul, Paul, you know what I mean if I'm changed that about. <clears throat> Philippians 3.5 If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of a people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Then in Acts 22, 3-4, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Silica, brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel, and I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them in prison. Right, where are my hearing notes? So, that gives a background of the mindset of the Pharisees and what, what Paul had to say about himself and how zealous he was and how well-versed he was in his culture and in the, um, in the law. So then moving on to Stephen, we see Stephen, um, this is when, when we encounter Saul whenever he's um, uh, at the stone of Stephen. We're first introduced to Stephen whenever there's some like, admin issues going on in the church in Acts 6, 1 to 5. Stephen is described in verse 5, Acts 6, verse 5, as being a man who was full of the Spirit. You never actually read of Stephen being filled with the Spirit. He was always full of the Spirit. He describes himself as being full of grace and power. Again, back to what Chris had said, where we have the Spirit, we have the power as well. Stephen was the first man outside of the apostles that we actually read of performing miracles. Stephen didn't have, un, until, the, until the admin issues in the church were, were coming about, um, about the feeding of the widows, and then Stephen was elected to be like, one of the deacons. But before that, he didn't have a role necessarily, a, a leadership role, and he was, he was an, an ordinary person. Um, we never actually read of John the Baptist performing miracles, and Jesus described John the Baptist as the greatest, actually, of anyone who had been born. So opposition arose against Stephen from members of the synagogue. And, but they couldn't stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. They brought false accusations against him, accusing him of blasphemy against Moses. They seized him and brought him before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the high court of the Jews. It was made up of chief priests and elders and teachers of the law, so people who would have been well-versed in their Jewish culture. Um, the, Sedrin, the Sanhedrin had a great deal of authority, but they couldn't um, actually impose capital punishment, which is interesting when the fact they took Stephen out and stoned him. Um, when they asked Stephen, the charges that they brought against him of blasphemy, when they asked Stephen if those charges were true, in the next 50 verses or so, Jesus or Stephen gave his defense in a, in a, a sweeping history of the, of the Jewish people. From Abraham leaving his country, to Isaac, to Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes, to, to Moses, or to Joseph ruling over Egypt, and to Moses bringing the Israelites out of slavery in the Exodus, and, and also how um, they had made the golden calf at that time and been disobedient. 
to then moving on to Joshua and to David and to the building of the temple of Solomon. And Stephen accused them of being a stiff-necked people. So Stephen's in the, in the Sanhedrin here in, in the, uh, talking to the Jews and the chief elders and the teachers of the law. And he's accusing them of being a stiff-necked people. Now, when they heard that, because they knew their history so well, their minds would have went back to the time when they, when they were their, their um, ancestors, their family, were worshipping the golden calf. Because at that time, when they were worshipping the golden calf, Moses was up the mountain, and God was calling them a stiff-necked people, and he wanted to wipe them out. So for Stephen to then stand in this court of the Jews and call them a stiff-necked people was um, a red flag to a bow, basically. Um, so... Stephen accused them also of resisting the Holy Spirit, um, just like their just like their fathers, saying their their history was um, so ingrained in it, it was they saw it as their family. Um, but the Pharisees prided themselves on how rigorously they upheld, upheld the law, and obedience to the law was one of the way they, the ways they saw themselves as being justified. And they were so devout to the law, as I said before, they would use violence. But their obedience to the law was one of the ways that they wanted to usher in the glory of God. They longed for the glory of God to come. So whenever they had, they were accusing Stephen, Stephen was standing there calling them a stiff-necked people, and he was full of the Holy Spirit, and it said, with a face like an angel, he looked up to heaven, and what did he see? He saw the glory of God, the very thing that the, the, the Pharisees wanted to see ushering in. Stephen said, look, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And that was too much in the take. It totally undermined their whole way of life. And they dragged him out of the synagogue, or out of the Sanhedrin, and stoned him. But what I found interesting was when, when Stephen looked up to heaven, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. We read in Mark 16, 19, Mark 14, 62, and Revelation 4, about Jesus sitting on the throne is the position of authority, where Jesus sitting on the throne. And it's before my time, so people in this room who are maybe older than me, when, you're, when you were in school years ago and a teacher walked into the room, you were made to stand. Um, anybody remember that? I don't want to embarrass anybody. Anybody remember that? But that was, uh, it was a sign of respect for the teacher coming into the room. And when we read about Jesus sitting on the throne and his position of authority, but yet when Stephen was being stoned, Jesus stood. And I just can't help but think, Jesus was standing as a mark of respect to welcome Stephen into heaven. He saw, saw knew the word. Um, it was ingrained in him. It was memorized in him. Um, he knew it inside out, but he didn't have the spirit. Stephen was a man of the word and the spirit, um, full of the spirit, and he could stand in the in front of the Jewish people and give a sweeping history. So he knew the word, he was a man of the word and the spirit. But Saul was then going to go on and encounter Christ on the road to Damascus. Um, and that was going to be an encounter that would change the course of history. Saul, who was a terrorist, became Paul and went on to write half the New Testament. All of his Jewish upbringing, after his encounter with Christ on the on the road to Damascus, he had to take himself off to Arabia for three years to rethink everything that he had just encountered with Christ. His Jewish upbringing, his culture, his whole family history and his traditions and his whole belief system all had to be reevaluated. 
Saul was then, Paul was then going to be sent as a missionary into the Gentile world. Um, so like I was saying, Saul was, he was a devout Jew. He was brought up in Tarsus, which was a Greek town. He was um, brought up under the influence of the Roman Empire. The Jews talked a lot about light, as in um, God being light. Um, in Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and light unto my path. So the Jews were known for talking about the light. The Greeks prided themselves in their knowledge and their philosophies and their way of thinking. The Romans were all about the glory of Rome. Um, so whenever Paul was then writing to the Corinthian church, Paul being influenced by all three, Paul writing to the Corinthian church in Corinthians 4, 6, he said, for, God's, <coughs> for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory displayed in the face of Christ. And he took all three and pointed towards Christ. So after... Paul was then went on his missionary journeys and the um, disciples and the followers of Christ were scattered. I meant to sort of draw these circles of where all they went, but basically from Jerusalem, which is there a wee laser in this? Oh, oh look. Yo, the Lord's here. So, <laughs> feel the authority. <laughs> So now I'll have to remember where these places are. So we'll have Jerusalem, or the, the disciples were, um, and then so Samaria and Judea were initially they didn't they didn't go to after persecution, and Samaria was like that was that was complete enemy territory. Um, the followers then went to um, Judea, Samaria. Philip went to um, the Gaza, which is where. Don't see it. There, yes, that's right, on to that place. Um, and then it said he preached in all the towns up to Caesarea. So you can see how, how um, the kingdom of Jesus was breaking out into all these, all these places where they wouldn't go before. Um, <clears throat> because Christ had become their passion. I've only a couple of minutes left. Christ had become their passion, as I was speaking at, at the start. If we have a passion, everybody around us will know it. Um, even in the face of persecution, Christ had become their passion, and they took that passion, and it was spread. The message of the kingdom was spread to all these places. Um, <clears throat> in, during the times of the early church, they went through a lot of, well, some brutal tortures. We can probably spend the next month talking about different stories and things, but you had the Roman Emperor Nero who had Christians covered in animal skin to then be torn to death by dogs, crucified, burned to death, dragged through the streets. Tertullian, one of the early Christian authors from the second, third century, said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we need to remember that these are our brothers and sisters who went before us. But throughout history... You can see, um, even in China, where where the gospel has been forbidden to be preached, and and the Christian church is meeting in secret. And I heard a few years ago that this, they estimated the believers to be about a hundred million, because of the persecution that went on. To do this, that was uh, they lived in fear of their lives to meet like this. They're meeting in secret. Um, I heard recently of another pastor in China. Every time he went to church, it, it got, they arrested him for two weeks at a time without having having to um, bring him to trial. Uh, he got to the stage where he brought a backpack and and just 
took that with him to church because he might not be going home this Sunday. He might be away for two weeks. There's also another pastor who they who they handcuffed handcuffed his ankles to his wrists for two full weeks, and that's where he how he had to eat his dinner and go to the toilet and everything like that. Um, I'm sure some of you are familiar with Richard Wimbrandt, was a Christ, uh, Romanian Christian who wrote the book Tortured for Christ. He was in prison for 14 years, and some of the stuff they went through was horrific. They were forced to take communion with their own bodily fluids. Uh, and that's some of the things that people today, in this day and age, uh, the torture that some people are going through. I'm just going to skip with a few other stories there, but I'm just going to st- skip to the end because when I mentioned about fear, you know, Jesus said um, in Matthew. 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, but I give you my peace. One more verse, and I just want to finish on. In Isaiah 41, 10, it says, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41, 13, three verses later. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear. I will help you. Bruna, I want to I show you what the, the posture of this. So I'm going to hold hands with my wife. Is that all right? So when I first read this, here's the way I thought. I pictured like if I was afraid and I saw myself standing with Jesus, I was like, Starting like this. So, but it says that um, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand and do not fear if the Lord takes hold of your right hand. And when I picture this, I thought, well, that's Bruno's right hand, but this is my left hand. So when the Lord's right hand holds our hand, it's more like this. That's your right hand. Uh-huh. So, but, but the, you can thank you. <laughs> Debbie McGee, my beautiful assistant. Um, <laughs> so, but what I, want to, what I want to say about that is just the posture of Jesus when he's saying, do not fear. The posture of Jesus is one of being intimate and looking at us in the eyes. I remember doing a counseling course maybe about 10 years ago, and one of the, one of the um, role plays we had to do was sit with somebody else just across the table and stir them in the eyes for like two minutes. And like you talk about intense. Now, it wasn't too bad on me because the, the wee girl I was with was just in high hysterics laughing and couldn't do it, so it made it a bit easier. But, but do, you, do you see just to do that, the intensity of it? And you have the posture of Jesus sitting on his throne, but he stood to receive Stephen. The posture of Jesus when we are afraid that he's standing with, that, with looking at us in the eyes. And there's something just in the postures of Jesus too, I think, just in talking about fear. Do you remember when they had the... Um, woman who was caught in adultery and they brought her out to be stoned and they're going to stone going to stone her and Jesus said um, whoever is without sin cast the first stone but what what catches me in that is whenever whenever the woman was here and everybody was going to stone her Jesus knelt down and wrote in the ground now I don't know what he wrote and I know a lot of people have looked into that but here's the thing Jesus did something a bit weird what he did was he, he knelt down the ground which meant Everybody's eyes then was taken off the woman and put onto him because this was just this was a bit strange. And it's like when I was saying about the, t- the teacher coming into the classroom. If somebody's teaching at the front of the class and somebody walks in, everybody goes like this. 
So the whole attention that was on the woman was then taken off her and put on to Christ. And I just think, if fear is something that you've had on your heart, even through worship, I just want to say to you that Jesus is changing his posture to look you in the eye and say, do not fear. We'll just close with prayers, 12 o'clock. Father, I just thank you for the freedom we have in this country to proclaim you as Christ the King. Lord, help us not to take that privilege lightly. Father, help us to step out in the Spirit. Lord, may you do a transforming work in our hearts and in our lives, Lord, where we are consumed with your word, we are consumed with fellowship for you, and we are consumed, Lord, with love for the world outside, Lord, that we can take your kingdom to those people who desperately need to hear it, Father. Father, thank you for the fact that we do not need to fear when we are in Christ. We are new creations, and I thank you, Lord, that you are... are, um, taking the posture to hold us in our situations and um, look us in the eye, Father, and welcome us into your kingdom and put your arms around us, Father, so that we do not need to live with a spirit of fear. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Stephen. Let's just honor the word, can we, and the, the work that's been into that. Thanks, Stephen. Give a round of applause. Thank you.